0: God often examines whether or not we're putting him first by the way we are using the things that he has entrusted to us. And very often when Jesus wants to test a person's spiritual condition, he goes right to their pocketbook, right to the things they own.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogie, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a biographical study of the prophet Elijah. This righteous man of God is introduced to us in 1 Kings 17, where we find ourselves today. We've seen that God has caused a drought to fall on the land. Now God instructs Elijah to go east of Jerusalem to the brook Cherith and that he'll provide for him. But as we pick up in verse 8, the brook has now dried up, and God again instructs Elijah to move, this time to a town called Zarephath. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogi as he tells us about this town in the middle of the danger zone.
0: Zarephath, it's a suburb of Sidon. It's in ancient Phoenicia. And if you look in chapter 16 and verse 31, we read it already, you discover that the name of the king ruling the Sidonians is Ethbael. Ethbael. He took his own title because of his worship of Baal. That's Jezebel's daddy. And so Elijah is going to Baal'sville. He's going to Gentile land. And God is telling him to leave his hiding place and to move to Jezebel's home turf. Not to bury him, but the text says to provide for him. And so to really appreciate what's happening, you have to know something about this city called Zarephath. It's enemy territory. It's a thoroughly wicked and depraved place. And of course, he makes a journey. And he is, he is very much a wanted man. Remember, this is enemy territory. When we come to chapter 18 and verse 10, we'll read, "As the Lord your God, Obadiah, this prophet of, I mean, this servant of God, who's caring for the prophets of God, comes up to uh, Elijah and says, "As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master, meaning wicked king Ahab, where my master has not sent to search for you." See what God's saying? God is saying here in verse 9, Elijah, I want you to go to the heart of enemy territory because I have a widow who's going to provide for you. You don't go to the poorest of all people, especially during the time of a famine, to get provision. Not, of course, unless God tells you to and you believe what God says. So he moves from his hiding place. He may have been there over a year. Difficult to be precise, maybe a year and a half, maybe an equal period of time in this place called Zarephath. But he goes from this solitary brook to this widow. He goes from the frying pan really into the fire. Look at verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please give me a little water in a jar that I might drink. Now, by the way, many places in the Bible are named by things that God did, or things that went on in that particular town, or the work, or the industry that the town was known for. In Zarephath is no exception. It's a word that literally means a smelter, a smelting place. It was a place where they basically smelted metals. In archaeology, affirms that very truth. It reveals that there were furnaces that had been built here in this place. It was the primary place where they built the little idols used for the worship of Baal. What Detroit is to the automobile, Zarephath was to the worship of Baal. Now think for a moment. Think about the irony and the danger. God says, Elijah, I'm going to send you to enemy territory where Baal is primarily worshiped where Jezebel, who has been murdering the prophets, that's her hometown, I'm sending you there, and I'm going to provide for you through a widow. Now, that doesn't make sense. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Notice how the situation unfolds, starting in verse 11. As she was going to get it, the water water jar, He called her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. He sounds a little demanding, doesn't he? First, he wants a drink of water in the middle of a severe drought. Now he wants a piece of bread. You see, God through Elijah is giving a a test to this woman, but God is also working in Elijah's heart. He needs to be compliant. He needed to be obedient to go to this place to begin with, and she needs to be compliant. She needs to be obedient to do what the prophet of God says. So notice he's working on her as well, verse 12 says, but she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat and die. Welcome to Zarephath, Elijah, a town whose name means smelting pot where God wants to refine the faith of two individuals. Now please note here that this widow is going to be used of God to provide for Elijah. Now she thinks she's gonna give her last meal as we'll see in a moment. She thinks it's over. But notice several things about this widow. She's an interesting lady. Number one, she's a believer in the true God of Israel. She prefaces her statement to Elijah with the words, as the Lord, that is YHWH, as the Lord your God lives. I mean, she's a breed apart. She's living in Pagansville. And she ignores what all the people are doing. And she believes in the one true God. Now, if you remember from the book of 1 Samuel, it's repeatedly mentioned There was a God, especially the Philistines, worshiped by the name of Dagon. Dagon was Baal's daddy. Dagon, uh, his name meant corn. And so they worshiped Dagon, and they also worshiped Baal, his son, because through uh, the fertility of the land, they supplied corn and oil. And interesting, when the land is divided by Moses into the 12 tribes, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 33, 24. Uh, This area that uh, Zarephath is in was given to the tribe of Asher. And in giving the blessing of the 12 tribes, he says to Asher, may he be favored by his brothers and may he dip his foot in oil. In other words, he is being given a fertile region filled with corn and oil, but it's running out. And Baal, who is supposed to supply it, seems unable. And so it's, again, fascinating that this woman, she doesn't look for some idol. She doesn't look for some good luck charm like all the other people are doing where they're crying out to Baal. No, she believes Baal is no God at all, but the God of Elijah is the one true God. But second, I want you to notice, not only is she a believer, she's destitute. It says here in verse 12, her own testimony, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. In addition to having lost her husband and her sustenance, it's clear, too, that she's lost her hope. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may die. She's saying, this is my son and mine's last meal. And after we eat, we have nothing left. We're just going to die. We're going to starve to death. I'm on my last dime. Don't ask me to give anything. Don't ask me to help you. And yet, This is the woman that God promises to care for Elijah through. Feeding Elijah and her son and herself is a physical impossibility. It wasn't possible to feed even one meal to all three of them. But in Elijah's thinking, if this is the woman that God wants to use then it's entirely possible, because with God all things are possible. And so Elijah passes the test, but now in his faith, he is going to test this woman's faith. Look at verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for your son. Now why and how could Elijah speak that way? because his faith was growing. He was getting stronger, your faith was like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more you respond, the greater is your capacity to trust God. You can't talk that way like Elijah did unless you walk this way as Elijah did. You can't encourage others to believe God if you haven't been down that road yourself. You cannot light someone else's torch if yours is not burning, but his was burning. He knew that a handful of flour and a little oil was no problem at all for God. And he knew this not from secondhand stories, not from academic theories. He knew it firsthand, because he had already seen God provide for him supernaturally at a brook. Do you know this in your experience that God is able to provide, or is it just something you read in a book? God wants you to know that the key to making this a reality In your experience, the key to unlocking his faithfulness to you is when you walk by faith. And to walk by faith, it's unlocked for us right here in this verse. Did you catch it? Look again at verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, two words I want you to circle. Do not fear. Go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. Circle that word first and bring it out to me, and afterward, circle or underline that word afterward. First, bring it out to me, and afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Now, that's a difficult command that she receives from this man of God. Make the cake for him first, she could have thought, well, that's kind of selfish of him, that's unkind. Me and my son, this is our last meal. She had been rationing the food carefully, She had just enough for one final meal, and Elijah wants it. Can you see this woman? She's gathering her sticks. She's got her little boy on her hip. And the man of God says, trust me, widow. Trust that the Lord God of Israel, whom you name, will take care of you. But you must first give to me the preacher, and then afterward, God will take care of you. Now, to have a stranger ask for a little water is one thing. But Elijah wants first crack at this widow's last meal. Now, he's not being cruel. He is building her faith. God is the instrument. He is the man of God. He is teaching her a word from God so that she, too, can grow in her faith as he has been growing in his faith. Now listen, I want you to listen carefully this morning. Pull up the shade, open the window. God has a blessing for you. Maybe not the way the prosperity theologians will teach you, but he has a blessing for you, and I don't want you to miss it. Just know that God doesn't provide indiscriminately for his people. When you read the promises of God in Scripture, for the most part, they fall into two categories, conditional promises and unconditional promises. Unconditional blessings are blessings that God is going to do no matter what. For instance, if you've been born from above, then you've been given as a down payment, as an earnest, as a deposit. God, the Holy Spirit, living in your bosom. And He is God's guarantee that the work God began, He will complete that someday God is going to give you a resurrected body. Even if you've not always been consistent in your walk with Jesus Christ, if you are truly born again, God is gonna pull off a resurrection someday where he is going to take you to heaven. But then there are many blessings of God that are conditionally unlocked by your faith. I will bless you if you obey this promise. And I will not bless you if you disobey this promise. For instance, it's not automatic that your children will grow up to love the Lord. Proverbs 22, Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6 teaches that God's word must be first in your heart. You have to willingly, consistently, because it's in your heart, teach it to your children as you walk in the way, as you rise up. And then and only then do you have the promise that your children won't jettison the faith, but they will continue to walk in the way of righteousness. Another example might be John 15:11 where Jesus promises our joy will be full if we obey him. Another might be John 14:21 where God says he will reveal himself to us. He'll make himself known to you in a more profound way as you obey. You know why some of you have such a dry, sour time with God? Because you're not obeying what you know. But when you're walking in the middle of God's will, it's the most exciting thing in the world when God takes this book, the Bible, and he speaks to you. Now please understand the principle that God elucidates here in 1 Kings 17 is not some isolated incident. In fact, I find it intriguing that very often when God wants to test a person's spiritual life, that he goes to their material possessions. It's interesting that of the 38 parables that Jesus tells, 16 of them deal with the subject of possessions. And God often examines whether or not we're putting him first by the way we are using the things that he has entrusted to us. And very often when Jesus wants to test a person's spiritual condition, he goes right to their pocketbook, right to the things they own. The way you manage what God has entrusted to you, because it's his, it's not yours. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You're just a steward, I'm just a steward. But if you want to know how you're doing spiritually, look at the way you're managing what God has entrusted to you. It's an old, maybe worn out statement. Purse strings reveal heart strings, but it's true. It's a biblical axiom. So God did not need this widow's flour and oil. He wants to bless this widow. Look at verse 14. For thus the Lord God of Israel, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of the Lord. And she and, and, and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now, I take it this widow had really one of two choices. She could have said, I'm sorry, this is all the bread, all the oil I have, you can't have it. Or she could have said, and this is obviously what she thought, God said through this man of God, that I am to give to him first. And if I will give to him first, he promises to take care of me and my son and Elijah through this entire drought. Now, it contradicts logic. I know it's illogical. But like Elijah, she believed as the Lord lives, he is able to perform all that which he has promised. Listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter three. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke six thirty eight: Given it, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour it out into your lap for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. It's an issue of priorities, whether or not we will put God first. And if we do not, God does not suffer. We are the ones who suffer. Haggai the prophet spoke of such priorities. The people, remember he's a post-exilic prophet. The people were back in the land. They were supposed to be rebuilding the temple and they're living in plush paneled houses and God's house is in ruins. And so the prophet steps up and he says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God is exhorting his people to think about the time and the way they are using their money. Consider, mull on this. Run it over in your head. So he gives them something to run over, ro- roll over in their heads. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. Now, God's not advocating drunkenness. He's just saying something about the supply of the wine. And because these people had given God second place, the very things they were seeking after and worshiping, well, they were in financial bondage. The harder they worked, you eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. They were killing themselves, it was coming in, but it was going out faster, to use his metaphor, and he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. They're shot through with the inflation that comes from God's hand as an act of discipline. And so God said through Haggai in chapter one, verse nine, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. These people were not seeing God's provision, God's way. Why? Because their priorities were way out of whack. See, ultimately, it's an issue of faith. And whether or not we're living by faith is seen by whether or not we put God first and one of the greatest signs that we are growing maturing changing and becoming more like christ is seen in the way we manage the money god has given to us now as far as we know this widow never got rich but god met her needs god provide for her daily bread needs god doesn't promise to make you rich but when you put him first he promises to meet your needs So, this widow heard God speak, and by faith she obeyed. She honored God, and God opened for her the windows of heaven. Look at verse 16. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. Now, do not forget here, there is something that's continuous in this miracle. God doesn't drop 25 pound bags of flour sagging up against her walls. No, this is a daily quiet drama of walking by faith of the jar and the jug. When she went to the cupboard on Monday, there was enough flour in the jar and enough oil for Monday, one day at a time. And it went on for weeks, for months, at least over a year. Every morning there was a fresh episode of God's provision. She could have sung morning by morning new mercies I see. And God didn't say that the jar of meal will overflow. He just said it would never be exhausted. Now that's the obedience. That's the compliance of faith is seen both in Elijah and in the widow. There's something else I want us to learn if our faith is to develop, and it's the challenge of faith. The challenge of faith there in your note-taking outline. Look now, if you will, at verse 17. Now it came about... After these things, when you read that, you're forced to ask after what things? After his encounter with Ahab and after his time at the brook and after the miracle of God providing for a starving widow and her son by providing meals of bread and after God's promise that the oil and the flour would stay until the famine was over. After these things now comes an even greater test of faith. Now it came about, verse 17, now it came about, after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now, the Hebrew word for breath is neshama. It's the same word that's used in Genesis when the Scripture says that God made Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into him the breath of life. We're not talking about some respiratory ailment as the liberal critics try to posit in our day. They say, well, you know, he just had a respiratory problem. He was short on breath. No, he was dead. He was dead, dead. Now, for many days, this widow and her son with Elijah had enjoyed seeing God's provision day after day, month after month. But now the breath of life was gone. We're told in verse 18. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? That's not a compliment. She explodes in anger. She evidently believed that there was a relationship between Elijah being a man of God and this judgment that had come on her home. Translated, paraphrased, Why did I ever invite you into my home? Why did I ever have the misfortune of meeting you, Elijah? She's in the process of lashing out after the only one who's ever prayed for her, who sought God for her, who cared for her, who interceded for her, and can still help her. But she not only blames him, she blames herself. For this son dying brought up into the recesses of her mind some sin in the past. Notice you have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. In her memory there was some dark sin, not named here, but it dwarfed all her other memories. We're not told what it is, but she connects it with this judgment from God. She's thinking that some past sin in her life, that God who had decided to lift her up and to bless her was now throwing her down to the ground by bringing her child in death. And she is holding that little lifeless boy in her arms. Elijah compassionately speaks to this widow. He doesn't lash out. Look at verse 19. He meets her in her grief. Give me your son. Then he took her from her bosom, which tells you he's a little boy, and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He doesn't lash out in anger, but he takes her son up to the room where I'm sure he had fought many battles in prayer. And God is about to do something through Elijah that up till this date, he had never done in the history of humanity. He is going to bring someone back to life. By the way, do you have an upper room of sorts? You say, I don't need one, I don't want one. That just shows you're unregenerate. Do you have an upper room, a place where you can meet God, where you can convene with God, Remember, James tells us in the New Testament that he was a man of effectual, fervent, earnest prayer. He reminds us that the effectual, fervent prayer of an earnest of, of a prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And to illustrate it, he uses Elijah. And so when this tragedy comes, what does he do first? He goes to God in prayer. By the way, when tragedy comes into your life, where do you go first? So we're told in verse 20, he called to the Lord and said, oh Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? He is honest as seen in the question he asks. He does not know why this boy has died. In essence, he's saying, Lord, what are you doing? What is it, Lord? Oh God, what do you mean by this? His prayer really begins with a question. And he's pleading the case of this widow before the Lord God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put yourself in prayer for another person, pleading their case, interceding for them? So very often we think when people are in distress that we just need to answer their why questions but sometimes we don't know the answer to their why questions. When my son and daughter-in-law lost our little grandbaby, I couldn't tell them why. But I had a throne of grace that I could approach and plead with God on their behalf.
1: We don't always have the answers to life's tragedies, but as Dr. Brogy noted, we have a God who loves us and cares for us in the depths of our despair, and He carries us through the most difficult days. To listen again to today's message, Faith in the Crucible, use the Search the Scriptures app, available through the App Store and Google Play Store, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program ELI2. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow, the conclusion of Faith in the Crucible. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.